and welcome to the Neurodivergence and Mental Health Podcast. My name is Sally Nilsson and I'm a psychotherapist, published author, public speaker and mum. I discovered my autism and ADHD aged 56 in March 2021 and having rewritten my life story, I'm on a quest to advocate for neurodivergent community. I hope you enjoy listening to my incredible guests sharing their experiences of autism, ADHD, dyslexia, dyspraxia, dyscalculia, Tourette's and OCD. We talk about growing up, education, work and personal stories and how mental health has played its part in shaping lives. Our conversations cover spectrums, traits, challenges, acceptance and successes. So sit back, relax and find out what it means to feel, think and be different in a neurotypical world. I'm delighted to introduce Miguel Toribio Mateus. Miguel is an applied research and development professional who studies and works with the complex relationship between food, nutrients and behaviour on the gut and the brain. Miguel was involved in a pioneering biotech startup analysis with Professor Tim Spector, renowned microbiome scientist at King's College London. He also received the prestigious Santander Work-Based Learning Award in 2016, which helped fund his doctorate on the gut microbiome and mental health at Middlesex University. Hi, Miguel. Thank you very much for agreeing to take part in the podcast. How are you today? I'm very well, thank you. Thank you so much for having me, Sally. It's a pleasure being with you. Great. Oh, it, it really is. It really is. I mean, the reason I asked you on is because I really like the article you wrote on LinkedIn about the value of caring for others. So if it's okay, I'd like to wrap the questions around that, please. But we, we may go in different directions, but I'm not going to surprise you with anything. I, you know, this is just a lovely, friendly chat. Does that sound okay with you? Mm, that's good. Yes, thank you. Okay, so I understand you are a new member of the Primary Care and Community Neurology Society Steering Committee. What does that role entail? Well, the Primary Care and Community Neurology Society, or the PCNS, is a uh, society that has a mission to empower patients, practitioners, and uh, industry partners by promoting engagement in an active community where all voices matter. And uh, so it's, it's basically looking at the person as an individual and taking patients' narratives and stories into account. So when we talk about person-centered care in neurology, you actually really don't, you just don't pay lip service to that. You, you really bring that person into the center of the, of the story and you listen to what is important to them. So that's really, uh, that's really it in a nutshell. And that's so interesting because um, you're using a phrase that I've been using a lot actually recently, and that's lip service. And I do get fed up sometimes with, with so much lip service and not enough and, and awareness and not enough actual action. And, um, you know, you're talking about community, you're talking about primary care, secondary care, you know, everybody talking to each other. And 
it is difficult you know uh, recently we've had the situation where you can't go and see a doctor anymore you don't know who your doctor is going to be you have a you know you have a short um, session with them um, and as far as neuro things are concerned especially with neurodivergency I mean well that's a that's a session for another day it's very very difficult it's um, you know well you don't seem to have enough of a problem you're not at the top so we're gonna send you um, a sort of a, a letter from the NHS saying you don't meet the criteria you might have to wait three or three years now depending on where you live and then what happens when you've had the diagnosis it's that post diagnosis so what you're doing is incredibly important work really really important and i'm going to be following you um you know to see the progress that you make thank you no that's good i mean the the, the key thing to this is that it's a newly formed committee so there's an, an existing committee and uh, the society is renewing its mission and vision and the idea has been driven by a colleague of mine uh, called uh, neil binderman who is a neuroscientist and he is one of the uh, um, uh, key members in the steering committee. And he's driven the idea that everybody in that steering committee should be a healthcare professional or um, somewhat related to healthcare and neurology, either on the actual primary care side or you know, as a consultant or as a neuroscientist like myself. So I'm not actually a, 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 neuro, a neurologist, I'm a neuroscientist. So everybody on the committee has got a, um, a, um, a neurological condition they are living with. So in my case, it's ADHD, and it has been anxiety for uh, a, a while before my, my diagnosis. Some of the people in the committee um, live with MS, with epilepsy, with uh, migraines, depression, fibromyalgia, you know, you, you name it. There's an, a range of, uh, of uh, conditions in there. And there's a, um, a member who's got a um, son who's autistic as well. And he's kind of like representing that neurodivergency angle in there as well alongside me. So it, it, we feel that that's important actually to, in order to, to really pay attention to the stories of people. If we are some of those people, we bring that angle ourselves so we know what to listen for. And that is absolutely vital. Um, you know, I'm not going to have a, a conversation with you about Spectrum 10K uh, because that's, a, again, a, a subject for another day, but only to say that the advisory board is only four out of 11 who are autistic and the whole team, as far as we know, none of them are. And I, it's really important and refreshing to hear from you, Miguel, that um, in your committee, you know, each and every one of you have got something to bring to the table. So, um, you know, that's really, really good to hear. Thank you so much for telling me about that. So um, in 2015, when you were studying for um, a master's degree at Roehampton University, uh, you had a situation where you handed in your essay late and received little support, which meant that you received a merit mark instead of a distinction. How do you think that situation could have been handled better? I mean, what, what happened? Tell me what happened. Yeah, so this is the kind of the basis of, the, of my story on LinkedIn. And I, I, I held it there for years because, as you will know, with ADHD, one of the things that can happen is that a tiny thing that for a, a neurotypical person might just be something they get over uh, very quickly. It might actually cost you a lot of pain. And, uh, and especially if it's something that causes you a great deal of pleasure. And my studies are my source of dopamine. So I went back to university. I'm 48 now. So 
you know, when you go back as a, as a mature student, life is um, grown around you. It's not the same as when you're in your 20s and you've got all the energy in the world. And my brain got a little bit worse during my 30s and my 40s as well. So my ADHD was actually rife at that point. It, you know, it had been probably from 2012 that I had been looking at having an assessment and and I got kind of like scared and pulled in different directions and I didn't do it until last year. But uh, I was struggling with focus, with concentration a lot. And I did really well on the assignment. I managed to submit it to the university portal literally one hour late. Yeah. And uh, my um, uh, um, supervisor, or the, the, the lady who was in charge of, of the course at the time, um, basically, I sent her an email to say, I've sent the assignment an hour late. Um, I'm very sorry. Is there any way that this can be taken into account? I didn't have a diagnosis at that point. So I wasn't going through the channel of the university support, which is non-existent for ADHD. There's dyslexia support, but there's no ADHD policy, oh. as I found out later. Yeah. So anyway, I... I got marked down to 50%. I was gutted. And mm -hmm. I still remember the email, you know, sadly you have missed the deadline, so you will be capped at 50%. Mm -hmm. So it sounds to some people petty because I still got a 71%. 75 was first in the master's and, and I got a, a first in my dissertation. But the average, because I got 50% in one module that was quite chunky in the weight. Yeah. In the end, I got marked down to 71. So I didn't get a distinction. And what I was driving at is the fact that as a mature student who has difficulty focusing and concentrating on subjects for a long time, to, to achieve that is actually really important. It's, it's quite a source of, of pride in, in your personal achievement. And it actually hurt me quite a lot. It was kind of at the back of my mind all the time. And only last year when I got my diagnosis, I think you'll know you go through a lot of emotion throughout, you know, after a diagnosis, you process things that oh, have gone gosh, on in yeah. your life. Mm -hmm. And I was quite angry about that. Suddenly it was just right at the front of my mind thinking, God, why did I get marked down on this? And yeah. it was making me feel really irated. So I thought I'll write an email and I'll explain what was going on at the time. I was uh, actually um, close to somebody who had, um, quite severe depression. So that was actually another factor that was affecting me. Uh, there was a lot going on. I had to go travel two hours to the university and two hours back. And, yeah. the, and it was very old fashioned. There wasn't any online. There was all kind of like, you had to be there for the lectures and everything else. So there was a lot on my plate at that time. And I tried to explain, I didn't get a response for about two weeks. And, uh, and then I thought, okay, I'm going to resend the email that I sent to this lady. I'm going to send it to the dys dyslexia support. There's only dyslexia support yes, at Roehampton. Yeah. There's no other support. I'm going to send it and I'm going to say, um, this is what has happened. Uh, have you got a policy? Would you be so kind to explain whether you have a policy for ADHD support? This is what happened to me. I, have I now have a diagnosis. I believe this, is, this was because of my ADHD. Is there any way of putting it right? Or at least if, it, if there's no way to put it right, can I let you know that this is what happened? So you have an awareness. Yeah. And if you have a policy on ADHD support, you are looking out for these kind of things because, mm. you know, I asked for three or four extensions to my essay. Uh, and I guess, you know, academics get together every few weeks and they discuss the students. So mature students, four extensions to the 
to the essays or the exams or whatever. So I think it would have been nice for somebody to ask, are you okay? You know, do you need support of, of any kind? Yeah. Uh, but it was, it was never asked, you know, it was never a question that, you know, I think they just university at that point thought I was a mature student. I was too busy. I was working and I was just uh, spreading things too, too thin. So, so yeah, so I, um, I got an email from the um, uh, learning support uh, lady saying they, they didn't have um, support for ADHD as in like a policy for ADHD, but I shouldn't worry because all students get all the support they need. And I actually felt like saying, you know, this is at the point that I thought, okay, well, the professor actually thought I was attacking people personally. It wasn't yes. my intention. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, the support from the university is telling me, oh, don't worry, students get all the support that they need. Mm -hmm. That wasn't my case. I thought, okay, well, I'll leave it there and then maybe I'll pick it up with an organization like the ADHD Foundation or yeah. something like that at a later point where I can actually lobby a little bit for these kind of things because I would like to, I would like to do that because it's not fair on any student who struggles to actually have to to go through things like that so it's terrible and i think there's two things that um you know i i pick up on from what you've said that the support is really important because if there was support in place then they would they would have given you the extensions and that would have been okay and that does need to change i mean there's so much that needs to change and and as as we advocate for change um hopefully we will see change in the future but the other thing, of course, is that um, you you are ADHD, and one of the biggest traits uh, right up the top there is rejection sensitivity dysphoria. And the thing is, is that you know many people with ADHD, uh, well, many anybody can feel bad um, being criticised or rejected. But the thing is, if you're ADHD, it can be crippling. It can be disabling. It can affect us so much more and, uh, and lead to mental illness. So, you know, you, you worked hard. You did the best you can. I hope lessons have been learned and, uh, and things will change in the future. Um, thank you for telling me that. Now, you wrote something which I really loved, um, the, this expression of this um, that you wrote. You wrote uh, that your thoughts were like bits of paper in a wind tunnel. I know that you have a diagnosis of ADHD. Please, can you describe how your mind works? It's uh, it, it's it's uh, it's random. <laughs> so, uh, as I'm sure many ADHD people will know, and uh, uh, I can do things in a non-sequential order. So I don't think I've ever read a book in my whole life from beginning to end, like starting in page one and finish on page 300 or something. Yeah. I get bored and I go to page 200 and then I jump back to whatever. And, uh, and especially because I read a lot of non fiction books so like science books so i never actually read a whole chapter from beginning to end i kind of like jump around and and i think i do that a lot with tasks as well so i'll have to do you know a whole project will have 20 tasks and i may do task 10 to 15 first and then i do you know whatever so uh, that is me through and through it has been all my life um, since i remember um, it's worked, so I'm here. <laughs> so. I mean, something that, uh, just to add to that, this is just a little extra. Um, I mean, from the minute I wake up to the minute I go to bed, I have a running commentary um, all day long, all the time. 
and um, and I just wondered, are you similar to that? Is your brain busy um, all all the time? Yeah, yeah, definitely. There's a lot of um, kind of like looking at what I'm doing from the outside, kind of thing, as if I'm kind of a, you know, I've got two cameras, like a fly on the wall documentary kind of thing. And neurotypical yeah. people, you know, that doesn't that doesn't happen to them. I mean, it, it it does to some people, you know, if they've got OCD or they have intrusive thoughts and things like that. But but the fact that uh, many of us with ADHD that we are literally chatting, we're having conversations. It's like lots of re different radio stations going off uh, at the same time. Um, <laughs> I don't mind it, it keeps me company, it's kind of okay, but you know, it, it, it needs distracting sometimes, otherwise it can uh, overtake a bit. So, um, you know, you describe um, how the need to hyper-focus means you cut out everything else around you to get a project done. How does this affect those around you? And how does this affect things like awareness of time your sleep and your general self-care yeah awareness of time is a big thing of for me because i'm very time blind so if i'm obsessed with something whether it's work you know a particular um, piece of work that i'm doing or things like music for example which is another big thing for me you know uh, um uh, you know, creating some music with some software or something which I used to be obsessed with about probably 15 years ago or so and basically I did nothing but that for days yeah. and days and days like yeah. you know and ignored everything and everybody else I think with my uh, my latest iteration of that probably has been my going back to college and doing all the science bits because I had done some science before but I hadn't actually um, become a scientist, so to speak, until probably what, like ten years ago or something like that. And uh, and again, I thought I was actually missing out compared to being twenty and just doing my PhD when I'm twenty-two or something like that. So I felt that I had to work extra hard. Yeah. And that meant I've cut out a lot of things in my life. I mean, my my real friends that I can count on the fingers of one hand, I can they know because they love me and they accept me for how I am so they say oh you never go out anymore or whatever you know you you're yeah. bo you're boring now and old and we yeah. kind of like take the mickey out of each other but um closer to home like with my other half I think he's just used to the fact that you know when I go on one I go on one and he just needs to leave me alone to get on with it because it's yeah. just uh there's no stopping me if I'm going for something I'm just completely going for it uh, and that happened during that master's for example I was quite obsessed with the with just you know getting everything right and and doing all the every everything I could and I just finished my doctorate as well and even though it's been easier in 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 global terms it's actually been easier than the masters because there's been less stress in my life throughout the five years of yeah. the doctorate it's still been a, a case of you know putting a lot of hours on something into something that I I feel really passionate about so I just really focus on that mm. and then other things just fall by the side basically whether it's relationships or friends or yeah so it's balancing that kind of thing it's tricky I'm lucky that that people around me are quite accepting mm. and they love me from you know for, for what I are uh, for what I am but but yeah it's uh it can be it can be challenging it can be and it, you know it can annoy people and you can feel isolated and lonely and I certainly did because 
you know, for quite a long time now, uh, my special interest has been in neurodivergency. And it's a difficult, it's, a, it's an impossible conversation to have with friends and family because unless they are too, it's just too complicated and um, you have to kind of steer, steer away from it. But, um, you know, I'm, I'm trying to sort of climb out of the special interest and hyperfocus a bit, but it is an amazing skill. It's a, it's a great skill as well. Um, a common trait of ADHD is uh, the need to work for deadlines, um, as you said yourself, and I know how that feels. Um, I mean, I find it impossible to get important things done unless I'm up against a tight deadline. And this was the case when I wrote my book. I could not have written it without being autistic and ADHD. I need the stress to motivate me, but of course this can lead to anxiety and burnout. Can you tell me about your experience of this happening to you? Um, yeah, so I, I, I'm very much the same. You know, I, I'm from an early age. I remember my mum and dad, are, my dad is nearly 90, my mum is late 80s, and, and they're still quite, you know, with it. And, and we laugh about these kind of things because they say, God, I cannot believe you're doing a doctorate now. You're knocking 50 and doing finishing your doctorate because, yeah. you know, do you remember when your dad was telling you, Miguel, study, Miguel, study? Because I would just leave everything until the night before. So yeah. I, I, that was me through and through from an early age. And uh, uh, in terms of like um, recent events, last year, uh, the reason why I ended up going to have an assessment was because... I actually ended up quite burnt out yeah. and it was out of anxiety because I had to hand in my thesis, I had shit loads of work, um, stress that was crippling and that stress with ADHD, again, people who um, are neurotypical might experience stress in a different way. When, when you're in a situation that you feel really pushed and, and kind of like questioned and it yeah. was a, it wasn't a nice situation to be in last year and which made me leave basically so I'm grateful in a way that that everything has a silver lining but yeah I ended up really um, run down I um, I had loads of pain in my body I was diagnosed with fibromyalgia I had loads oh. of anxiety yeah. at that point like creeping anxiety I was having kind of like panic attacks out of nowhere in the middle of the evening, yeah. just sat there watching the telly and suddenly I'm, I feel I'm, I'm gonna have a heart attack. Yeah. So I, um, the fibromyalgia um, was a bit of a cue for me because the ADHD was uh, in the back of my mind. I had been for years, probably for 10 years now. And, uh, and I just um, started reading about fibromyalgia and uh, I came up with some studies saying that a lot of people with fibromyalgia have ADHD. There's a, a yes. huge overlap. Mm. So that's what made me click. I thought, you know, I had a colleague at work who got diagnosed as well. So I've got a nice community because there's about five friends now who have been diagnosed quite recently in the last oh year gosh. or so. And yeah, have they thought, all got ADHD as well or have they ADHD. got chronic stress that has led to fibromyalgia? They have, no, so this was ADHD. So I was yeah. having conversations with this particular colleague of mine about the ADHD and he suffers from stress as well, from yeah. um, mm -hmm. anxiety. Uh, he has done for a while. And, and we were sharing so much about like the experiences and so on. And, uh, and I thought, well, that's it. You know, I'm making an appointment now. And I kind of like, I was yeah. open-minded to what it could be. Yeah. Uh, but, but really, I wanted to get diagnosed. I wanted to get assessed for um, ADHD, and I did. And, uh, and I'm very happy I did because it's actually kind of like cleared a lot of, um, a lot of crap from my, from my mind, you know, in terms yeah. of like 
knowing why I have done things in the past and, and yes. why I do things the, the, the way I do them. But yeah, anxiety and burnout are two big ones because when you go full blast on, into something and you ignore sometimes eating, although I'm, I'm quite an eater anyway, so I never have oh, yeah, that problem. Too. I wish I had it a little bit, yeah, you know, some yeah. days. I don't really have that, but um, yeah, I can go, you know, until early hours of the morning if I'm really, really into something or, you know, my, my brain is kind of like a, like a washing machine on a spin cycle, you know, it doesn't mm. stop. And no. when that happens, then other things just fall by the side. And if you do it long enough, then you end up being burned out so the diagnosis has helped me realize that i need my sleep i need to eat yes properly. it's non-negotiable isn't it sleep. things like that are really really important and noise for example so it affects me a lot i'm really really sensitive to noise yeah so i need to find a quiet space that sometimes is challenging because i've got two dogs so when they go on one barking as well it's kind of a you yeah know. i'm sorry i'm much happier with a with a meowy cat than dogs i couldn't cope with dogs <laughs> i mean i've got to ask you you know how's your fibromyalgia now and you know, what happens with fibromyalgia? Does it run a course um, and then go away? Um, you tell me about that. Yeah, so the fibromyalgia is a little bit better. Uh, it comes in, in flare-ups. So basically one day you haven't got any pain and then the next day you have got pain and it, you know, out of nowhere. It, it is quite triggered by stress. So I now know that I cannot really get in a situation like I did last year where I thought yeah. I could carry the world on my shoulders mm. and I couldn't really. And, and that was a really humbling situation as well for me because I yeah. think for many years, I just thought of me as being resilient, just doing, you know, I could take everything. I could take any projects. Yeah. I could do hours and hours. I could take like three jobs at the same time because... Yeah. I smashed it. I just worked, you know, Saturdays and Sundays and I didn't mind. And last year I just thought, you know what, you may have been able to get away with it like 15 years ago, but you cannot now. And will you yeah. always have fibromyalgia or, or can it go away? Uh, well, I think once, once you have it, you have it. Uh, I think it can disappear. It's, it's rare that it does disappear. Although some people have actually experienced that. Um, but yeah. well, I wish I absolutely, you know, everything cross for you and that you keep your stress levels down and, you know, and you'll know, you know how to do that anyway. And just, you know, you'll have your markers, you'll use your observing self and you'll hopefully with your self-awareness, you'll, you'll move through that. So what do you do? Um, you know, what do you do to cope now? You know, what sort of, uh, sort of hobbies and coping strategies have you got to de-stress and to keep calm? So my dogs, even though they're a source of stress, they're a source of love as well. Like really, you know, Labradors are cuddly, they're silly. So they're really good for distressing. And I think this time of the day when they are tired, I've got one of them just lying at my feet Aww. here. They are tired, they just want to cuddle. And, and, and I love that. I love just spending time with them and with my other half, just that, you know, just watching the telly or reading together or whatever we do in the evening. So... I, I'm, I'm, you know, I, I do enough highbrow things during the day that I don't need a highbrow um, evening. evening. You know, I'm, I'm quite happy watching Coronation Street and having a, you know, and having <laughs> a, a home meal, you know, a home cooked meal. Oh, yeah. that, well, that sounds heaven. I, I have to say that I'm binge watching Grey's Anatomy at the moment. Oh, that's good. I love it. I'm, uh, I'm way into season two and, uh, 
Um, and it's perfect for me. Anything to do with hospitals, um, you know, I'll just chomp it up. I love it all. So, so I really, really like that. So um, going back to the um, sort of assessment, you know, why were you so scared of the prospect of an ADHD assessment? And what was the process like for you? You know, how did you feel after the diagnosis? You mentioned um, a few things. Yeah, I wasn't scared, scared. I mean, I did um, uh, for years uh, and I'm still connected, although I don't do so much work with them anymore. Um, I did work with a, a team of psychiatrists um, that provide support for a range of mental health conditions. They specialize in addiction care, particularly. And obviously, there's a lot of overlap with all that kind of yes. uh, areas of mental health in that, that particular instance. But yeah, so so I, I, I knew psychiatrists were not scary. I think I was kind of a scared to find out what could be there you know if, if you go to the psychiatrist and start telling them you know everything with your heart in your hand what are they going to tell you and and how is that going to impact me but also my relationships my friends you know all this yeah. kind of stuff it's kind of like knowledge is power but also it can be scary um but uh, yeah no I'm, I'm i'm glad i did i i uh as i said i had um overwhelming kind of amount of emotions uh, to the point that you know I was just boring the pants of everybody just telling them about ADHD and you know how um, neuro um, diverse people are different and you know I just jumped onto the oh I just want to let everybody know that you know it's okay you can you know you can get your diagnosis and you can actually carry on living it's not that scary uh, be a bit careful though um, I, I've certainly found that uh, you know, be, I, I've got the same with, you know, my best friends, um, I count on one hand. But the thing is, is that now I'm diagnosed, I, I know that some of my friends, um, you know, my, some of my friends are probably ADHD as well. And, uh, you know, I can't go around diagnosing people and I would never do that as a psychotherapist. I don't assess, I don't diagnose, I just observe. It's quite difficult when you're itching to say something and you absolutely can't say anything. And the other thing as well, I found, um, I found that process leading up to the um, assessment and diagnosis incredibly painful because especially the autism side because I hadn't even really thought about ADHD but that made sense because I was running about all over the place and inattentive I was everything but um, it was you know it was feeling like I might be a fake and um, and the imposter syndrome and coming up and you know because I'd always thought I was sort of mentally ill all the time and then I realized I was just neurodivergent um, and I think for me it was that and certainly my clients coming to me when they're going towards assessment they need a coach they need a mentor it's not just counseling and psychotherapy it's having someone to hold your hand give you resources you know chat about you know all sorts of things you know and and, and it's it, it needs to change i think the whole psychotherapeutic um training and delivery has got to be different when it comes to neurodivergency um, personally, I think that. And just going back to um, your experiences at university, specifically the first one, um, how did it feel when the neuroscientist at Roehampton didn't support you or validate your concerns and anxiety? That was the most shocking thing because, um, and this is what I said to the learning supports um, um, lady when I uh, emailed them, I said, what I find most shocking is that this happened in a department of neuroscience so you think that 
there should be an awareness around an adult behaving in a certain way, you know, inattentive about a deadline, um, looking a bit stressed, um, asking for three or four extensions out of however many modules, you know, seven modules and, you know, more than half you ask for an extension. Uh, and uh, almost um, invariably it was like the day before handing the essay as well, or, you know, so it was kind of like, you know, very last minute. And I think, is there not a pattern in there that somebody really should yes. identify and say, right, so when they meet every, what, you know, whenever, every three weeks or every month and they have a chat about the handful of people there, we were not hundreds, we were probably like 20 in some of the lectures. So, yeah. you know, they discuss them. They say, right, what about this guy? You know, he's asked for three extensions. Anybody seen yeah. any strange behavior or anything that should you know to flag up to ask him or and and when i um, um detailed everything in my email and um uh and i actually loved the the lectures i i thought she was a brilliant lecturer and actually was very complimentary in my email as well but when i told her about all the you know all the stuff i went into one kind of like long story you know probably yeah. she got overwhelmed by because my email was quite long yeah. but she never actually apologized for uh um or she said, oh, she was sorry to hear it or anything like that. She, she, you know, it was all kind of, um, oh, Defensive, you, I think it you need like. to, yeah, you need to be kind. You cannot just blame people, you know, uh, yeah. along the lines of that. And I just thought, actually, I think you just got the complete right, wrong end of the stick. You know, I'm yes. not blaming people. I'm just saying, I don't want this to happen to, well, two things. If, if my marks can be mend then, you know, if they can be mended, then that, that's great. But to be quite honest, I've moved on. This is like in 2016. Yes, it's not yeah. like a big deal. For me, it was more important that other people in my situation didn't face the same exactly the same the same um kind of uh, um, stress that i faced and and they are not thinking about it five years later because they have this kind of like dysphoria kind of effect. I wonder how I wonder how much has changed and I wonder how long it's going to be before it changes significantly. I do happen to know that um, I have a, a friend who um, is a director at King's College and uh, King's College are very, very, very good because um, I have a friend whose daughter um, has um, ME. Um, probably fibromyalgia and probably caused by stress um, as well. And uh, and the support that she gets at King's College is absolutely second to none. It's very, very good at King's College. And I will, um, it was really good um, it, at, at Middlesex as well. I think you, you're probably going to ask me something around yes. Middlesex and my degree. Yes, I mean, you went on to study at Middlesex um, where the environment was very different. And uh, we're told that adversity makes us stronger. Um, what lessons have you learned from both of your academic experiences? Well, I think there's a certain amount that you can change instead of just saying, right, I've, 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 I'm ADHD. My brain is always going to lack some um, of the dopamine that I need to focus or to, you know, to get me motivated to do things. So I just take that kind of like lying down. Yes, it's always going to be like that. Yes, medication might help. You know, some days that it helps better than other days. Yeah. Um, so it's not a super miracle. You know, some days it helps you feel more motivated. Some days it doesn't. But it's it's about how when you you were talking about this fly on the wall documentary situation where we are observing ourselves all the time and the inner dialogue that we have with ourselves. And, yeah. uh, and that 
can be a good thing in terms of like you know it raises your self-awareness of of things that happen in your life mm. and you think if you struggle with deadlines and you uh, find a system that is a little bit better and you stick to that and you actually have a positive narrative to yourself about how when you do some something in a certain way it works and it makes you feel good as opposed to get to the end of the day and feel depressed because you haven't achieved anything and and then the narrative is negative yes. if you change the narrative to yourself i think that's extremely useful and uh, and if you're surrounded by people who don't push you because they don't understand that your brain works differently yeah. that's much better and i think middlesex has been great with that because you know i i shared my diagnosis with my with uh, the professor who's been my supervisor I told him about the uh, fibromyalgia. I told him everything. I had like a you know a long chat with him. It was absolutely uh, fantastic. You know, very accommodating. I should have done. I should have handed him my thesis exactly a year ago. So I've had a like a year kind yes. of like extension, so to speak, to 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 finish it Brilliant. because oh, I got into yeah. a complete tangle with it yeah. at one point, trying to finish it and rush it, and I wasn't happy. Yeah. And and that's when I had the chat with him. So. Um, and I've actually included a, a neurodiverse perspective on my work as part of my thesis. And one of the things that I would like to 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 be an outcome of that is that I would like to have a a, a bigger role in academia going forward. If I can bring that with me, and I, I can actually bring yes. my lived experience with me, and make sure that some of the things that I've lived don't happen to other people, and to accommodate. Yeah what they might need, whether it's, you know, an extension or, or, or a chat, as you were saying, you know, just yeah. having a chat with somebody who might be qualified like yourself or, or just a, or a simple... Or a buddy or a mentor who's also ADHD, just someone to, to offload. I yeah. mean, um, you know, how do you want to change the way things are now in the area of neurodivergency? Um, you know, what do you think will be your own contribution to the community? Yeah, I think my lived experience, I think everybody... Uh, is um, uh, unique in the sense that we have all things in common, but we have all uh, our own experience. We come from different backgrounds and it's a melting pot of people because, you know, depending on on what type of uh, um, ADHD you have and depending on how severe your uh, autism is or, you know, or your dyslexia or dyscalculia or whatever it is, it's a big melting pot of people. So in a way, that's uh, challenging, but it's also fantastic because we bring so much richness and different experiences from different backgrounds in all kinds of walks of life. So as much as I can bring in from my own experience, that, that is great. And then from the, my own experience as a neuroscientist as well, who understands the brain, or I claim to understand the brain anyway, on a, on a, you know, in a good day. So I, I think bringing that to, to the to the front as well and say, look, these are the things that you can do for self-care, for example, yes. for, for lifestyle health, as opposed to just lifestyle medicine. So uh, something that, that you don't actually just use lifestyle as a medicine, you use it as a prevention tool. So things yes. that you can do like movement, like yes. eating good food, like sleep, like yes. going out and, and, and getting your hands dirty, gardening or something, because it yes. might actually help your immune system and your, your your cognitive function as well and all those kind of like basic things that 
sometimes we just take for granted because we think, oh, the medication is going to sort it out or the, the CBT is going to sort it out. And, and then we just don't, don't pay attention to the fact that is a number of pillars that are going to keep the whole of the building uh, standing. That's right. And, um, and also, I mean, within the, um, I mean, you have the, on one side, you have the autistic community and then you have the autism community on that side, on the autism side. And it is quite different. You know, you have people who are actually, you know, they are ADHD, they have ADHD um, or they're interested in, in ADHD. I'm not, I find it quite frustrating and difficult sometimes to listen to people who are very activist um, type you know I think action is very important because I don't want to be rattling lots of cages and demanding and, and, and wagging fingers and doing all that sort of stuff what I quite like to do is I like to um, you know do things by example so you know I'd like to you know I'd like somebody to come up to me and say you know oh what you're doing look it looks quite interesting tell me more I'd like to see what you're doing I'd, I'd, I'd prefer to see that so that um, f between the whole community whether you're neurodivergent or you're not neurodivergent people are interested and they don't just put the shutters down they think that's really interesting you know like when you play with a child and uh, you know rather than trying to make them do something you'll just go over and start drawing a really good cartoon and they'll come and watch you know just you know showing by example I think is good now I'd, yeah I'd say one of your areas of interest is um, of course the microbiology and gut health um, and us ADHD is uh, we're rather paradoxical um, I mean, I take a gut supplement and I eat gut-friendly foods. I drink lots of water and I make sleep a non-negotiable priority. Yet, I eat too much red meat and I love sugary foods and carbs. So what top piece of advice would you give to people to ensure a healthy gut and better mental health? It's interesting. The, 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 the signature of a gut with of in a person with uh, ADHD is slightly different to um, somebody who is not ADHD, and uh, and there's some good indication of that because there's been loads of studies done, particularly in children where the the microbiome is changing quite rapidly. So it's actually even more challenging to identify what might be a, a pattern for ADHD for the ADHD microbiome versus a non ADHD microbiome, and. Uh, I'm actually involved in a clinical trial that should be published soon. It's actually being peer reviewed on the effects of um, uh, kefir, the, the uh, fermented oh, yeah. milk. Yeah, I on, have that every day. Uh, that's good. On the, on, on the symptoms of ADHD in children. So it's a pilot study. It should be, should be out there for people to read soon um, with a lovely lady, uh, um, Kate Lawrence from uh, uh, St. Mary's University as the lead investigator, uh, clinical psycho uh, psychologist from St. Mary's, and a group of other people from uh, um, uh, Goldsmiths and, and St. Mary's, but, and me. But the, the gist of it is that fermented foods are a really good source of a diverse um, colony of a community of bacteria that are um, because it's a food matrix and, and it's kind of as, as nature intended, it's, it's softer, it's kinder on the gut of uh, somebody who might be neurodivergent, who is going to have a quirky gut anyway, yeah. um, in general, mm -hmm. and that might be a better uh, route of getting you 
your additional bacteria uh, into your body than perhaps taking a super expensive um, gut supplement. Yeah. So, so that would be something to take into account, whether it's a fermented dairy, so kefir or yogurt or you know whatever actually agrees with you. If you're dairy-free, there's really good sources of bifida bacteria uh, in sauerkraut or kimchi, you know, yes. fermented cabbage and so on. So those would be, you know, on a very general kind of scale, my my preferred foods for the for the brain via the gut. It's interesting you say that. I'm gonna I'm, I'm share something with you because I'm an oversharer. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, when I was a kid, um, I used to eat uh, willow brick, chalk bones, grass, paper hair and lots of other interesting things. I ate lots of uh, non-food items. And uh, when I was pregnant with my first child, um, I ate coal and ended up having 300 pounds worth of orthodontist treatment. With my second child, I ate mud. And uh, in 2007, I was diagnosed celiac and I'm ADHD. So, you know, what you're saying about, you know, my flora in my gut, you know, my, my small intestine, the villi within and, uh, you know, all those sort of things. Um, I mean, I've been gluten free for all this time and my blood tests are coming back as not celiac now. So I'm doing a good job, even though I'm eating sugar, which I really shouldn't do. But, uh, you know, is that the sort of thing you're talking about? Yeah, I mean, the, it's just, uh, it, it's, it's, it's a matter of actually um, uh, making sure that you're, your diet is is varied, and you're eating a a, a range of different nutrients from, um, a f particularly for the microbiome, uh, uh, fresh sources like you know uh, plants, particularly so f uh, fruits and vegetables. Not so much coal. I'm not sure what the <laughs> <laughs> the role of coal is in the microbiome. Mud, however, you know if you you have loads of bacteria in mud. The, the, the way you get them into your body is sometimes it's interesting because if you, uh, you know, if you rewind and put yourself 200,000 years ago when we were kind of like, you know, um, uh, running around and getting muddy and we didn't think anything of yeah. it, we got a lot of bacteria from the earth, from the soil, from picking up, you know, dirty fruit as we were hunter gatherers. And, yes. and those bacteria have actually played a role in colonizing our our intestines so we are less exposed to that because if you live in a in a city and you you live in you know in a in a place where you haven't got access to the outside easily you live in yeah. a flat for example you might not get to touch the soil or to go to no. do gardening or uh, and then touch your mouth or touch your skin yeah. whenever there is a touch of you know whenever your hands are dirty you're likely to at one point touch your face at yes. one point or another. We humans, yeah. we do that all the time. Yeah, of course. So it's, um, it's a source of those microbes that are actually in the soil that may not actually stay in your gut, but they play a role in, in, in how your immune system works. And, uh, and they do for all animals, not just for humans, but that's, that's quite an interesting kind of thing. You know, the soil thing that you mentioned, you may have got some bacteria out of that that were actually good for your gut. Well, you know, I, I am so much about the fact that we're humans. We're just a species of animal. We're very like chimpanzees and bonobos and gorillas. Um, I know one of the things as far as mindfulness and, and something that's very good for us is to actually walk in the woods and take our shoes and socks off and walk on the soil 
um, is very important. I mean, we've always been a very muddy family, throwing the kids in the mud, eating mud and all, and all of that sort of thing. Um, nevertheless, I'm still celiac, but um, <laughs> it's, you know, it, it's just the way it is. But um, I think your studies um, are absolutely fascinating and I will keep, um, I will definitely be keep following you. And, you know, I've, I've absolutely, you know, loved our, um, you know, our interview today and talking to you today. I've learned an awful lot. And, uh, and I just think, you know, oh, that, just the other thing as well is that ADHD people, we are hunter-gatherers. We are the ones that the minute we wake up in the morning, the ideas start popping like popcorn. We want to get out there and start finding things and problem solving and finding solutions and doing all these sort of different things. We were put on the planet to do that. So listen, society, and listen, neurotypical people out there. You need us because we'll find things for you in detail, hyper-focused, and, uh, and uh, you know, it's all, it's all good stuff. So thank you once again so much, Miguel. And... Uh, I hope to have you perhaps on the podcast again in the future. That'd be lovely. Thank you so much, Sally. I really enjoyed myself talking with you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you very much for listening to the Neurodivergence and Mental Health podcast. Links and resources will be at the end in the show notes. I very much look forward to meeting you again. Thanks for listening. Bye.